controversy around what was the center of the universe. You see, for years, people had believed that Earth was the center of the universe and that everything revolved around the Earth. And men like Copernicus and Galileo and other astronomers and inventors were using telescopes and different scientific equipment that they were inventing at that time to look at space. And they were noticing that it didn't seem like everything was revolving around the Earth, but rather the Earth was revolving around the sun. And while I don't think this contradicts what scripture has to say, it was a problem for the Catholic Church. And so Galileo, in the early 1600s, he was sentenced to several different inquisitions and questionings from the Roman Catholic Church because of his teaching. He had to promise that he would never teach again that the earth was not the center of the universe. And he lived in house arrest for years, unable to say what his beliefs were and unable to say what he thought the truth actually was until eventually he died while he was in house arrest. But what people found out was that he was right. The sun did rotate or the earth did rotate around the sun. And while he was never vindicated in his life, even the Catholic Church had to admit that Galileo was right about what he believed. You see, no matter what your opinion on the truth happens to be, the truth doesn't change. People want to say that truth is what you want it to be or that it's relative to what you think it should be. But truth is truth. Truth doesn't change and truth doesn't care about your opinions or what you might have to say about it. We might have different opinions on issues, but God's word stays the same. We know that in scripture, Jesus says, sanctify them with thy truth. Your word is truth. And so what is truth? We know that God's word, scripture is truth. And truth, again, doesn't care about what we might think about it or have to say about it, but it remains the same. And when we start understanding the truth, when we start understanding what reality really is, is it changes the way we think. Our passage this morning in Titus chapter 3 verses 3 through 7 points out a sobering truth and that is the truth of the gospel. As Titus is writing to these people in chapter 3, he's showing or Paul is showing Titus how to have a well-ordered and healthy church. How to establish good churches on the island of Crete. We know he was starting new churches there in this new church movement. And Paul is writing to them and he's saying, this is how you appoint elders. And this is how you have a church family that works together. And this is how you deal with false teachers. And last week we looked at how does a healthy church deal with the world and the different influences around it. And then Paul decides to write about the gospel. He decides to write about truth. He decides to write about what reality really is for us. And why does he do this? Why does he spend so much time talking about the gospel? And why would he start writing about the gospel here as we're entering chapter 3 and as we're getting ready to finish the book? Why give this whole explanation of the gospel here? Well, I think it's for this reason. The reality of the gospel changes how we approach the world. You see, we all believe different truths about who we are. 
We all believe different things about how good we are and how valuable we are and what we're good at and what we're bad at. And those things may not be necessarily wrong, but Scripture tells us the truth. Scripture shows us reality. You know, I could believe a lot of different things about how I look, but when I look in the mirror, it tells me the truth. It shows me what I actually look like. People can believe different things about what they weigh, but when they step on the scale, it tells them the truth. I mean, my scale is broken, but most people, it tells them the truth. And as we get to Titus chapter 3, Paul starts telling us the truth. And when we understand the truth, when we understand reality, it changes how we approach the world. And so look with me at three truths that Paul presents to us in this passage. Three different realities, three different truths that Paul presents to us that changes how we approach the world. And the first one is this, your sin required salvation. Your sin required salvation. Do you see that with me in verse 3? For we ourselves were, led us, were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Why should we live with a good attitude towards the world? Why should we share the gospel with them? Why should we submit to authority? All these different attitudes that we talked about in verses 1 and 2, why should we devote ourselves to these things? Why should these define us as Christians? Because our sin required salvation. Paul wants these believers to understand, and Paul wants us to understand, that we look at the world and we see how negative it is and how sinful it is and how corrupt it can be. And we talk about how world leaders are corrupt and we see other people and all the sin and filthiness that they live in. And we understand that our sin required salvation, that we weren't really any different from them. You know, all of us will convince ourselves that we're not quite as bad as we actually are. We might say, yeah, I struggle with this or I've done this in my life, but it's not as bad as what this person has done. No, the truth is your sin required salvation, just like everyone else's. And Paul gives us a perfect description of that here in verse 3. He starts talking about how we used to live. He transitions here and he says, For we ourselves, to add emphasis, at one time in this former life that we lived, we were once foolish. We were once foolish. Foolishness is what it means to be unintelligent, dull-witted, or ignorance, to not have knowledge, to lack spiritual understanding. We don't really know what's going on. Foolishness is the opposite of wisdom. In the book of Proverbs, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And throughout the entire book of Proverbs, you see the way of the wise and the way of the fool. And we think that foolishness just has to do with knowledge, and it has to do with knowledge in one sense, but those who are fools do not fear the Lord. They do not have a spiritual understanding of who God is, and that leads them to a foolish lifestyle full of decisions and attitudes and thoughts and actions that do not please God. Foolish people lack spiritual 
understanding. The same word that Paul uses here is used at the end of Luke's gospel to describe the two men on the road to Emmaus. Christ appears to them. He starts explaining the gospel to them, but it says they're foolish. They didn't have the spiritual understanding to know what things had just taken place and how significant they are. Before Christ, we were foolish. It's not just the people around us. It's not just the people sitting next to you in church. Before Christ, you were foolish. I was foolish. Everyone was foolish. We did not know God. We did not have the mental capacity to understand who God was and what he had done for us. We lacked spiritual understanding. No matter when you were saved, you could have been saved at a very young age. You could have been saved at a very old age. All of us were foolish. All of us didn't know who God was, what he had done for us, and none of us embraced God as well. We know the world is foolish, that the things of God do not make sense to the world. The wisdom of God is foolishness to them. But Paul is pointing out here that you're not any different than they are now. But before Christ, you were foolish. You didn't understand this. Secondly, he also tells us that we were disobedient. This has been brought up a lot in Titus, this idea of submitting to authority, obeying God, doing good works. We know that God has a standard of living. We see the law in the Old Testament, but even in the New Testament, we still have commands. We still have things that God has told us to do, rules that we are to follow, things that please God that we know that we should do that are right, but in our sinful hearts, we don't do them. Without God, you do not want to obey, and you don't want to obey in the way that God has ordered you to obey. We were rebellious against God's law. He had a moral standard of what was right, and none of us wanted to obey. None of us wanted to do what was right. We shouldn't be surprised when we see the world not obeying Christianity, not obeying what the Bible has told them to do. But we must remember that before Christ, none of us wanted to obey as well. We were all disobedient to God and his authority. Thirdly, it says, you were led astray. This means to wander about aimlessly, to not have any sense of direction, to be misled. I'm always reminded when I think of this word, of when I go to Walmart and I go and get my groceries and then I come out to the parking lot and I have no idea where I parked. And I wish I could say that this is only one time, but this is about every time I go to the store. And I wonder about aimlessly and I'm clicking my lock button to see if my car is going to honk at me. And sometimes I even want to hit the panic alarm just to see where my car is. I'm wondering about aimlessly. You can pray for me with that. But the Bible says that all of us, before Christ, we wandered around aimlessly. We didn't know where to go. We had no idea who to follow. And guess what told us to follow them? It was the world. People who wander around aimlessly are seduced by the world. And the world says, follow this. Listen to this. Do this. This is how you should live. The devil says, here are the things you should do. Here's the way you should live. Your own flesh wants to control where you are going. The Bible says all we like sheep have been led astray. All of us are foolish. All of us are disobedient. All of us are deceived. 
It's similar to what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13. Evil people will go on being imposters, deceiving, and being deceived. All of us before Christ wanted to deceive others, and all of us were being deceived by other people and things as well. We don't have to look too much at the world to see that people are truly buying into what the world would sell them. They're buying into the lie of Satan. They are being deceived by others. But Paul is telling us, you were no better. You were deceived as well. You were led astray. Whether you were saved very young or whether you were saved very old, all of us in our former former sinful state were led astray. Fourthly, you were slaves. Notice that with me. You were slaved. This idea has been brought up in Titus as well, that you were not your own master, but you were subservient to someone else. To be enslaved means that you're forced to perform the duties or the tasks of someone else. Paul writes to people who were actually enslaved, who were bond servants. Throughout Paul's writings, he says that we can be enslaved to different things. We can be enslaved to idols, immorality. We can be enslaved to our own sinful appetites, to the law, to different elemental things. All of us were enslaved to our sin. Now that sin may look different for different people. We don't all struggle with sin in the same way. But all of us were enslaved to our own sinful desires and our own sinful life. People can be enslaved to alcohol, pornography, drugs, lies, stealing, sex, power, sports, TV, some things that aren't bad, some things that are obviously wicked, but they do not serve themselves, but they serve the desires of something else. Ultimately, we know they serve the devil, their flesh, and the world. Paul says, you were slaves. You were in bondage to someone else. And then lastly, notice with me that you were hateful. He says, passing our days in malice and envy. We were wasting our days away. We were spending our time in malice, hating other people, and then in envy, being jealous of what other people had. Have you ever had a day like that? Maybe a snow day or a day off work or something. Maybe during the pandemic where you just kind of wasted your time and the day just kind of got away from you. Scripture says that we were just passing our time away in jealousy and in hatred. Notice what else he says. He says, hated by others and hating one another. Other people couldn't stand to be around us. Other people hated us. And guess what? We didn't like them either. You ever met people like that? Nobody really likes them or wants to spend time with them. But they also don't want to spend time with other people as well. Yeah, Scripture says this is all of us before we knew Christ, that we were hateful, that we were hated by others too. I watched recently a a basketball documentary on Michael Jordan, and I didn't really grow up during the time that Michael Jordan was playing, but I'm from Illinois, and so everybody around there is a Chicago Bulls fan, so I heard a lot about him obviously. But one of the teams that they talked about was the Detroit Pistons and how they played Michael Jordan. And they were called the bad boys because everybody in the NBA hated playing the Pistons. 
And the Pistons weren't big fans of anybody else either. And I wasn't, again, around very much during this time. But watching the documentary, they were very physical and very rough on opponents, especially the Bulls. And they were a very hard physical team to try to play. They played violently and aggressively. And nobody really wanted to play them, and they didn't really care for other teams as well. And they were good. They won championships, but they struggled with getting along with the other teams they were playing. You see, the gospel tells us the truth, and this is why a lot of people struggle to understand and commit to the gospel, because if you understand the gospel, you understand that you aren't as perfect as you want to think you are, that you aren't good, that you sinned against God, and whether you committed one sin or a million sins, your sin separates you from God your sin disobeys his law, and your sin leaves you out of fellowship with him. All of us left to ourselves want to minimize our sin. Even those of us who are believers want to look back on our sinful past and think, why well, wasn't that bad? I hadn't done that much before I was saved. Myself, I was saved at a very young age. I was saved at the age of six years old. What could I have possibly done that was so wicked. Well, the Bible tells me what my heart was like. My heart was foolish. My heart was disobedience. My heart did not want to please God. And guess what? I would have stayed that way if it was not for the gospel. If it wasn't for the gospel, I would still be passing my days away in malice and envy. If it wasn't for the gospel, I would still be hating others and hated by others as well. If it wasn't for the gospel, I would be enslaved to my sin and so would all of us. You see, the truth of the gospel tells us that none of us are as good and none of us were as good before Christ as we might want to think that we actually were. This is, it has been this way since the fall. Adam and Eve sinned against God and because of their sin, it separated us from God and it gave us all sin nature. But don't blame them because all of us would have probably done the same thing as well. God gave man a choice. God gave man free will and mankind chose sin and chose to rebel against him. As Vadi Bakum says, we all crave justice, but if we got justice, we would all die. The truth of the gospel tells us that sin was transferred into each one of us because of the fall of Adam and Eve. And without Christ, that sin would have continued and perpetuated in our lives. And we need to understand this truth this morning. We need to be confronted with the truth that we were sinners. Why? Well, I'm not trying to get us to feel bad. I'm not trying to get us to hate ourselves necessarily. But the truth of the gospel, the truth of who we were, first of all, keeps us from pride. It keeps us from having an inflated view of who we truly are. None of us can argue that we were so great before salvation or that it took less grace for God to save us. No matter how old you were, no matter what you had done, you were a sinner separated from God. Your sin required Christ to come and give his life as a sacrifice on this earth. It keeps us from pride. And it secondly helps us as we evaluate the world. 
It reminds us that as we share the gospel with the world, that they are lost as well. It reminds us that if someone had not shared the gospel with us, if the gospel of God hadn't reached down to us and convicted us of sin and shown us how to live and follow Christ, that we'd be in that same sinful state. It reminds us that we live in a world that desperately needs Christ and needs the gospel. The truth about you, the truth about me, the truth about all of us is that our sin required salvation. Secondly, notice this. Your works could not earn salvation. Your works could not earn salvation. You see that with me in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not by works of righteousness, which we had done, but according to his own mercy. We notice that salvation is a gift. We were sinful. We were in darkness. We were slaves to our own desires. But something happened. But something changed. But God intervened. And in verse 4 it says, God's goodness and kindness appeared. Here a couple weeks ago, we said that word appeared. It comes up in chapter 2 of Titus. It means to shine light in on something. It means to have something be revealed. You see, we were in darkness before Christ, but when God's goodness and kindness appeared, the light of the gospel shone down on our darkness. It's where we get our English word for an epiphany. For something to be revealed or to come to mind. Paul is saying that God's goodness and his kindness appeared towards us in the gospel. His goodness is his generosity. His good pleasure. His charity towards us. And then the second word, one of my favorite words, is his loving kindness. It's a little different than loving kindness that we see in the Old Testament. <clears throat> the Greek word is philanthropia. It's where we get our English word for philanthropy. It's a lover of humanity, a lover of people. If you look at rich people, they, a lot of them want to be philanthropists or lover, lovers of people. They want to be known for doing good, charitable works. I recently heard a story that there was a 19-year-old living on in a tent on the campus of Gordon State College in Barnesville, Georgia. The police were called and they were prepared to evict him until they heard his story. You see, he'd rode six hours from his family's home in Georgia on his brother's little bicycle that was not full size. He carried all his possessions with him, which included a duffel bag, a tent, two gallons of water, and a box of cereal. That was all he had. He did this to enroll in his second semester at college, and he went early to college to find a job, but he was unable to find one. So the policemen ended up putting him up in a hotel. They started a GoFundMe page, and around $180,000 was raised for his college, and it was put in a trust so that he could use that money and use it wisely to pay for his education. People from all around the world donated supplies for school and food and clothing. And he eventually was able to enroll in school and 
Um, he had most of his school paid for from all that money that was donated. People love to be philanthropists. They love to give and be charitable. But think about this for just a moment. We're all blown away by that. But do you realize that God is a lover of man and a lover of humanity even more than all those people? Do you realize that God did more for that person than all those other people who gave could have ever done? Because while maybe God isn't known, he still provides for him, but didn't do what they did, he sent Christ on the cross for that person's sin. That God loved that person infinitely more than any of us ever could. See, these people showed love for a complete stranger, but God showed his love to him and to all of us when we were his enemy, when we sinned against him. So as you think about God's goodness and his loving kindness, think about a God who loves humanity so much that he would choose to save them even though they had sinned against him, even though they were so wicked. We see God's goodness and his loving kindness here. In chapter 2, it's called his grace. His grace that saves and his grace that trains us. We secondly see in verse 5 that this salvation is from God. God is the one who initiates salvation. Look at verse 5. He saved us. He's the one acting in salvation. But in the Greek... That's actually not the first words of the sentence. That phrase is included. But in Greek, the sentence starts out by saying, not by works of righteousness, which we had done. And why does it do that? Because Paul wants to emphasize that salvation is not based on anything that you or I could do. Our works, our deeds, our actions that we could commit, we couldn't earn our salvation. There is nothing we could do to earn righteousness. Salvation is not through works, but it is by grace through faith. And why is Paul bringing this up now? Because if you've been with us in Titus, we've seen that there's sound doctrine and there's good works. Sound doctrine affects what you believe and also how you live. And good works are the good things that God calls us to do. We talked about these last week, sharing the gospel with others praying for people, giving to others, being involved in our community, spending time with people, encouraging others. All of these things are good works, but Paul is pointing out here that none of our good works can save us. None of our good works can add righteousness. You see, you could spend your whole life trying to pay God back, trying to earn salvation from just one sin and you could do all the good works in the world and you would never come close to paying your own sin debts if it was up to us and it was up to our good works you could be the best most charitable person here on earth and you could not save yourself salvation is not by our own works of righteousness martin luther wrote this he said god never yet gave any person grace and everlasting life as a reward for merit. Those who seek to earn the grace of God by their own efforts are trying to please God with sin. None of us by our own good merits could earn salvation. None of us could provide for ourselves. 
it was up to you, if it was up to me to try to earn, to try to pay God back for our salvation, we would still be separated from him forever. It's all because of his mercy. Do you see that in verse 5? He saved us not by works of righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Because God in his mercy looked down on us and he had compassion for us. It's a concern. This mercy is a concern for those who don't know God, who don't have a relationship with him. God didn't save us because we were worth saving, because we could do anything for our salvation. But he saved us because he had mercy on us. He saved us because he loves humans and he loves humanity. Steve Lawson says salvation is not a reward for the righteous, but it's a gift for the guilty. We couldn't earn our salvation. It's only by God's grace that any of us can know God and have a relationship with him. My brother Tritton right now, who comes and plays piano, he's a senior in high school, and he's working on scholarships for college. You know, scholarships are advertised as free money so that you can go to college. They're a gift. But to get a scholarship, you have to apply. Sometimes you have to write an essay. Sometimes you have to do so much charitable work. Sometimes you have to have an interview. Sometimes you have to be at the top of your class and have a certain grade point average. There was one girl who paid for all of her college in scholarships by researching and finding all these different scholarships that she could get. And she said it was the equivalent to working a full-time job. She spent so much work trying to get free money so that she could go to school. And all of us are thankful for scholarships. I know I was. But unlike a scholarship, salvation is not based on a requirement that we have. We don't have to apply to be saved. We don't have to have a credit score done. We don't have to pass a background check. We don't have to have a certain grade point average. I'm thankful for that. Salvation is a gift from God. Salvation isn't based on anything you could do or any qualification that you could meet. Rather, God in salvation says, come freely as you are As sinful as you are, you couldn't add or contribute anything in your salvation this morning. We sang about this in the hymn, Jesus Paid It All, in verse 3. For nothing good have I, whereby thy grace to claim, I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. Jesus paid it all. We didn't pay some of it, we didn't pay half of it. He didn't give us a loan and say, hey, pay the rest back when you can. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. You see, the truth about us is that none of us could earn our salvation by our good works or by who we are. But salvation is by God's grace. And he wants the Cretans, and he wants Titus, and he wants us today to understand this because it shows us what good works actually are. They aren't a way that we earn our salvation, but rather we do good works because we are saved. In Ephesians, we do good works because we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of doing good works. We do good works not so that more people will like us, Not just so more people will come to our church, but it's because this is who we are 
in Christ. This is what we are supposed to do. Sometimes in our Christian life, we think we aren't as bad as we could be. We think that maybe it took less grace for God to save us and nothing could be farther from the truth. God didn't save us because we were so desirable. He didn't save us because we could add something to our salvation. But he saved us because he looked down on us in love. And so if this is true about all of us, it should change how we view the world. It should change our attitude towards the world. It should remind us that those people can't earn their salvation either. That your friends in the world who are really good people, as far as you're concerned, that do things that are right, that are good neighbors, that are good family members, they can't earn their own salvation either, just like you. And they need the gospel as well. It reminds us that your unsaved friends, your unsaved family members, your coworkers that are really bad, they don't deserve salvation just as much as you didn't deserve salvation either. And they needed to be reminded They need to be shown the truth of who God is in salvation. Salvation is not by any work that you or I could do, but it's only by the grace of God. The truth about us, the truth about the gospel is that you could not earn your own salvation. Lastly, notice with me. The truth about the gospel is that your God enacted salvation. Your God enacted salvation, meaning he's the one that made it happen. He's the one that began this process. He's the one that continues this process. He's the one that ends this process. What I love about this passage is that Paul is telling us something very practical. It's telling us something that should change how we live. But he also tells us something very theological, something very unique about what God does in salvation. If you look closely at this passage, you see all three members of the Trinity are represented in salvation. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they all have a part in this saving process. Notice with me in verse 4, God the Father. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saves us. God the Father is the one who is good. God the Father is the one who is loving Ultimately, God the Father is the one that we sinned against. He had this righteous standard of living. He had this law that we were to follow, that we were to obey, and we broke his law. In some Christian literature and Christian writing, people think that God offered Christ as a sacrifice to appease Satan or to pay back Satan in some way. And that's not true at all. We sinned against God, and Jesus was offered as a sacrifice to God for our sin. In verse 5, we see that it's God who saves. He's the one who saved us. In Ephesians, we see that he planned out this salvation before the, end of the, wor- before the foundation of the world. He planned out our salvation. He continues our salvation. He's the one working in this process. We know we will stand before him one day in our glorified bodies at the end of this process as well. Salvation is an act of God alone god the father is the one who plans out this process he saved us he showed us kindness he showed us mercy he showed us goodness generosity secondly notice with me how the holy spirit 
works in our salvation as well. The second half of verse 5. He saved us not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do in our salvation? How does he work? First of all, it says that we are washed, the washing of regeneration. Some people think this means baptism, but it's a little deeper than baptism. Baptism might be a picture of this, but it's a deep washing. It's like taking a bath, a deep washing that happens at your salvation. In salvation, we are sinful, we are dirty, and God washes us and makes us clean. Just like we sang about earlier, I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. Sin had left a crimson stain, and he washed it white as snow. The washing of regeneration. What does regeneration mean? It means to have new life, to be started again, to begin to grow, to begin to change. It's similar to the second phrase he uses, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration refers to our salvation in Christ. Renewal refers to our life and living and growing in Christ. You see, in salvation, as many people who are much wiser, much smarter than I have said, we're not only saved from the penalty of sin, what sin has done to us, the penalty of going to hell because of our sin. We're also saved from the power of sin. In renewal, you're saved from sin's sinful effect on your life. And you no longer have to obey your sinful desires, but you're saved from sin's power. And that happens throughout your life until you stand before God in heaven. And then one day you're finally freed from the very presence of sin. That is salvation in full effect. And this happens through the Holy Spirit. The washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has a work in salvation that he accomplishes. Salvation is planned out by God. It's a gift from God. It's his goodness. It's his kindness. The Holy Spirit, though, washes us. He renews us. He regenerates us. Look at verse 6. Whom, speaking of the Spirit, he poured out on us. Again, this water illustration. The Holy Spirit is richly poured out on us in salvation. It's a full experience. Some think this happened at Pentecost, and I think it did happen to some, but it happens to all of us in our salvation. The Holy Spirit is poured out on us so that we can be washed, so that we can be regenerated, so that we can be renewed. The Holy Spirit has an active work in salvation. But notice, lastly, with me, the work of the Son, whom he poured out on us richly through who? Through Jesus Christ. The work of Christ on the cross allows all of this to be possible. God planned out our salvation. The Holy Spirit washes us, renews us, Gives us new life in Christ, but it's based on the work of Christ on the cross. Jesus Christ, who is called our Savior. Jesus tells us in his Gospels that he came not only to 
serve, but to give his life as a ransom for many. We've talked about as we recognize communion, why did Jesus Christ come and die on the cross? He died on the cross so that we could be saved, so that we could be washed, so that we could be renewed. You see, Christ was not born of man like we are. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He couldn't be born like we were from a human father, so he was born of a virgin. You see, Christ kept the whole law even though we couldn't in our own sinful actions and desires. We couldn't keep the whole law. So Christ kept the law. We could not stop sinning, but yet Christ was free from sin. He was the perfect, spotless, faithful lamb of God. Christ willingly came and suffered here on this earth as a sacrifice for sin. Christ needed to fulfill prophecy that was given in the Old Testament. So he fulfilled all 300 or so prophecies that were given about Christ. Jesus had the power. He was here on earth. He could have called his angels to take him off the cross. He could have been removed from this suffering, but he prays and he asks the Father, if there's any way that this cup can be removed from him, and he still willingly endures the penalty of the cross for sin. He remained silent while he was accused and beaten and mocked and scorned by soldiers. They drove whips with nails into his back. They shoved a crown of thorns on his head. He hung on that cross for hours until he cried out, it is finished. He didn't faint or swoon like some people say, but he died a physical death on the cross until they shoved a spear in his side and blood and water poured out, like prophecy said. He was buried in Joseph's tomb until three days later he rose again, showing victory and power over sin and death. And Jesus did all of this so that you could be saved. Jesus did all of this because you could not earn salvation in your own works of righteousness. Jesus did all of this because nothing you could do in your own self could save you. Salvation is planned. It's given by the Father. It's renewed. It's regenerated through the Spirit. It's through the work of Christ the Son on the cross. And notice what it does for us in verse 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs of eternal life. The work of Christ on the cross makes you righteous with God. It gives you a good legal standing before him. You have peace with God. This is what Christ did for us. Paul says so that we could become heirs with God. Christ is the son of God. We know this. But through salvation, the scripture says we become co-heirs with Christ. We receive adoption. We receive inheritance with him. God did this so that we could be adopted into the family of God. We'll talk about this verse next week, but notice what Paul says in verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. The gospel 
The work of God and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. The truth about salvation is that your sin required it, is that your works could not earn it, and that your God enacted it for all of us. And how do we respond to that? We're thankful to God. We sing songs, we sang songs today, full of gratitude for what God has done for us. We thank God through prayer, through living lives as living sacrifices to him. We respond with hearts that are thankful for the gospel. But we also remember that God did this for everyone else as well. That he sent Christ as a sacrifice for their sin as well. And so we share the gospel with others. We are good testimony to others in the world. We submit to authority as good citizens. We're gentle with others even when they are aggravating us. We tell others about Christ even when we question if they deserve it, even when they reject us. We're faithful stewards in the world because God has done this for us. That is the gospel. And that is the truth of our Christian life. Truth changes us. We can, like I said earlier, we can tell ourselves anything we want and we can choose to believe whatever we want. But friends, this is the truth of the gospel, what Paul has written for us today. And the truth of the gospel tells us that we should be different as we interact with the world. So lastly, let us think about as we close, how does this change how we approach the world? How does this change how we interact with the world? We first of all recognize that we were once just as sinful as they are. Your sin's not any better than theirs is. Your sin's not any more holy. It's not any more private before God. Your sin is just as bad as theirs is. Secondly, we share with them the truth of the gospel. We tell them, hey, this is what Christ did for me. This is what God did for us in sending Christ. This is how I've been changed, how I've been renewed, how I've been washed. And then lastly, we live transformed lives because of the gospel. We're saved so that we don't have to live like we did in verse 3. God says, come as you are in salvation. But as we talked about a couple weeks ago, he doesn't expect us to stay that way. But the saving grace of God also trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. The truth of the gospel should change all of our lives and all of our attitudes in the world. And if we understand the truth of the gospel, if we understand what God has done for us, and we live that out in the world, then we become as a church healthy, well-ordered, living in sound doctrine. You want to know what we can do as a church to proclaim Christ? If you don't know what we as a church can do to be healthy, we can believe the gospel. And because we believe the gospel, we can share that gospel with the world. Father, we thank you for your grace that you've given to us.
Grace that we don't deserve, grace that we could not earn, grace that's only through your Son, Christ, grace that's given to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for that, Father. We thank you that we can be here this morning. Help us to respond to this saving work in our lives. Help us to allow allow this to change our attitude even in the world. In Christ's name we pray, amen.